Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden, in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we're also joined again by our francophone editor, Giro Nima. A very good afternoon to you, Giro. Good afternoon, Eric. Well, we have both of our lead editors today with us, in part because there is so much going on, and when we have so many stories at once to cover, we need to do what we call the lightning round shows, and that's why we've brought Kobus and Giro to share some of their insights on some of the big stories. Before we get started, though, I want to really extend a very heartfelt thank you to so many of our listeners. You can tell from my voice compared to last week that I am doing a lot better. I am fully recovered from COVID. I had negative tests all this week. And you have no idea, Kobus, both you guys have not had COVID yet. And one of the most disheartening parts of this whole process is that about a week into it, you kind of feel better. And you're just stuck inside because you're testing positive. And that was, to me, just absolutely driving me crazy. But after our show last week, where my voice was a little strained, I got a lot of nice feedback from everybody asking if I was okay. And so I am, and just a very big thank you. So today we're going to be talking about a lot of what's going on in the Chinese mining sector in Africa. And that's why we've asked Jero to join us. When I say that it has been a truly miserable week for Chinese mining companies in Africa, Never in the 12 years that we've been covering this have I seen a week like this. This has been remarkable in the scale of the setbacks that the Chinese have faced. First, Jero, there is what happened in Guinea, and then let's talk about what happened in your native country in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Start us off with what's going on at the Samandu mine in Guinea. So basically, what's happening in Guinea, it's a following of what's happened earlier in February when the junta in power in Guinea decided to stop, um, to, to stop the Simandu project ongoing because they wanted, the government wanted the operators, the mining operators, the Australian Rio Tinto consortium and the other, the other Chinese-led consortium SMB winning to find an agreement on how they're going to build and finance the infrastructure Infrastructure. The infrastructure comprises of the railway, 670 kilometers from the from the east to the west, and uh, 
a, a huge port in, in, in Conakry to where they're going to be evacuating the iron. So when they start in February, they say they find an agreement and they're going to be working on together. So they're going to fi- create a joint venture and then they're going to find a way to, to, to finance the project. Four months into the discussion, and they still didn't find the, the agreement. In, mid, in mid-June, the president, Mamadi Dumbuya, received the mining operators, warning them, giving them an ultimatum of 14 days to find an agreement. Otherwise, he will suspend the operation again. And 14 days later, no agreement, and yet he decided to suspend the operation. So basically, Rio Tinto Consortium with China, called, uh, the operation Simandu has stopped. SMB winning with uh, China Aluminium in the Simandu project block one and two, they also stopped. So basically, the operation is on alt, nothing is happening, and the Guinean government wants them to find an agreement. So from now on, we just don't know from where they're going to go from here. Okay, so just give us a little bit of background for those folks who may not be familiar with the Samandu mine in Guinea, why it's important to the Chinese, and what's the significance of this deal? So basically, Simandu is the alternative for China to free himself, to cut himself from the dependence of from Australian uh, iron ore, because so far China has been importing his iron from Australia. So Simandu is the largest iron uh, reserve unexploited in the world. So China has bet a lot of money in that project. With that project, it's going to allow China to become free from Australian iron ore. So this is one. This is why we see a lot of Chinese presence in both in both side of the deals because we see Rio Tin as partner with China Co. And we see an SMB winnings. We see Shandong Weixia was also present there. We also we see Chinese companies in the infrastructure into building the infrastructure into the uh, into the port and into even the railway. So we see a lot of Chinese presence there because um, Simandu project is very capital, is a very strategic uh, um, project for China in that regard for the, to, to, to cut its dependence from Australia. Is it accurate to see this as an African government essentially using their their mineral resource to, to get a really good deal, kind of out of out of these, you know, like knowing that China has this kind of geostrategic, you know, agenda, uh, or is the situation on on the you know on, on on the African government side a little bit more complicated than that? We have to to put in the context where it's we see the general trend into the mining sector, or not only in Africa, we also see that in the in in Indonesia, or Indonesia halted the export of raw material for bauxite, so even for nickel, forcing Chinese companies to open processing plants in, in Indonesia. We see the same thing happening in Zimbabwe, where another Chinese company has experienced the same blow, where the Zimbabwean government forced them to say, before doing anything, you have to commit, you're going to be building you're going to be building processing plants in the country and producing um, uh, um, uh, lithium in the country. And the Guinea is also the same perspective. We, we saw that, especially with the new power, with a new regime where they've been pushing a lot. We have to keep in mind that Simandu project has been I mean, it's this, the project is not just moving on. Since 1997, when Rio Tinto got the first exploitation permit in 1997, 25 later down the line, the project is still where it, where it was. No really operation has started there. So 
The new regime came and said, we want things to move forward. We want things to move fast. But then we may ask ourselves why a, reg- a transition regime as the one in power would want to push things forward now and fast as they want to, f- to, to move it now. That might be the question we, we might ask ourselves. There might be a local political agenda the regime wants to play in that regard. Well, we'll get to the agendas very quickly, but you made a reference to what's going on in Zimbabwe. And this is an interesting side story that we've been following. Following. Uh, the company you're referring to is Zhejiang Huayo Cobalt, which bought a $422 million lithium mine as part of the agreement with the Zimbabwean government. They said they were going to build vast amounts of infrastructure. The problem is, is that Zhejiang Huayo Cobalt has said now that the infrastructure costs would render the project unfeasible, economically unviable. Exactly. And so this is the problem because Many African countries, including the Democratic Republic of Congo, lack the power infrastructure to do the processing of the raw materials before export. So what Indonesia has been able to do by forcing Chinese companies to come and do the processing is due in part because Indonesia's infrastructure is at a higher stage of development than that in the DRC, in Guinea, or in Zimbabwe. So they've been able to exact that leverage over the Chinese and it's going to be very interesting to watch the case in Zimbabwe to see whether Zhejiang Huayo Cobalt is able to continue to mine or whether the Zimbabwean government says the contract's null and void. We're now going to find another partner who's willing to build the infrastructure. Let's go back to Guinea very quickly before we move on to the DRC. Let's talk about the different agendas here. You wrote to our subscribers yesterday in the newsletter. You said that the Chinese have one set of agendas. Again, you mentioned that about breaking their dependence on Australian iron ore. The irony here, of course, is that Rio Tinto is an Australian company. So that should be a little bit weird, (laughs) but okay. So that's the Chinese agenda. Very, very clear. They see the Samandu mine as a potential alternative to Australia. Even though, let's put this in context, the Australian market for the Chinese iron ore buyers is just enormous. I think it's something like 60 plus percent of all Chinese iron ore buys come from Australia. So replacing the Australians is going to be very difficult. And Samandu has the potential to do that, but it will take many years to develop Samandu to get to that point. Let's talk about the Australian agenda related to the price of iron ore that right now is down sharply. And also, again, touch a little bit on the fact of the Guinean military government, they're under pressure to deliver results quickly. Yeah. So let's look at the three agendas and why this deal may have fallen apart the way it did. Exactly. So we have different agenda here. We have uh, Australian agenda. Rio Tinto has, a, would say, a more pure economic agenda that's as to take into account the current price of the iron ore. It's a profit-driven agenda. Exactly. It's been very, the iron ore market has been very unstable the last six and nine months. And even the Queen Guinea even made the situation difficult for the iron market. And when you take into account all COVID restrictions happened into China, also impacted the iron ore in, in, in general. So when you take that into account, 
Rio Tinto doesn't really have the, 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 the motive or even the incentive to invest and to launch Simandu right now because it's going to oversupply the markets. And the more you oversupply the market, the more the price is going to go, is, is going to go down. And when the price goes down, in the same time, when they have to commit with Guinea, they have to increase the cost of production because we are talking about billions of billions in, in terms of infrastructure. They have to build 670 kilometers railway. Um, uh, 128 bridges and tunnels and everything and not even mentioning the ports they have to build so you have that cost that's really just too high to 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 bear right now for for rio tinto and now when you put that economic agenda aside the poor free dividend agenda you also have the geopolitical the geopolitical part of it i already already mentioned it china australia and when rio tinto is you know, Rio Tinto is partnering with, with the with, with the China Alco in the business. We may understand that China Alco would want to move forward, but Rio Tinto being the majority share in the project, we you know they might slow the project to the dis to, to the displeasure of the Chinese partners. That's the geopolitic and the economic part of it. And when we go back now to the local politics of it, we may not understand why the regime wants to push. The, the project right now, giving strict deadlines, because we haven't seen that in the last 25 years. They've been now the new regime has been pushing deadlines. So the 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 perspective of becoming a political actors may be may driving, maybe the one driving the, the regime right now. Because the few uh, last month they said that they're gonna have 39 months of transition period, which is really you know which is really quite long for many people in in Guinea. But when they're gonna the transition is over, if they have if they plan to become political actors, they'd rather have some political agenda to show. They have to show, they have results to show. They, they, and for them, Simandu is gonna be a big win when they be able to say you know as a military we're able to move Simandu forward after 25 years so us becoming political leaders it just makes it just makes sense for you to elect us and to be with us so there's also that part of the political agenda that may be driving um, the, the regime in guinea to push with strict deadlines in that project so this is going to be a very important story to watch going forward keep your eyes on what happens in guinea with the chinese will they stay with rio tinto will they break away on their own to strike out a deal with the government themselves the Chinese had already started to build some of that infrastructure, so it sounds like, as Giraud pointed out, that a lot of the frustrations that Conakry is having is with the Rio Tinto side and less with the SMB winning side. That's the Chinese part of the coalition. That said, this has been a contentious relationship for much of this year, and it will be interesting to see if it restarts. China has a very big imperative, again, to break its dependency on Australian iron ore to get this thing going. Let's leave Guinea aside for now and head south down to uh, your former stomping grounds in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Again, another major setback for a major Chinese company. China Mali is CMOC. There's numbers of ways of calling this company. They are the 80% owners of the TFM mine in Kalwezi of cobalt and copper. This is the world's second largest cobalt mine. It is a major, major mine in the world of electric vehicle batteries. It is very important strategically for the Chinese. It is a major source of investment for the Chinese in the DRC. And it is also a major point of contention between the Congolese government, Jekamines, the state-owned mining company that owns 20% of TFM, and China Mali, or CMOC as it's called. So on July 3rd, 
the temporary court administrator of the project sent a letter to the different companies that said, we are halting exports of cobalt and this has shut down. Now, to be fair here, according to Reuters, the representative of CMOC said, we have not shut down our operations. We have not stopped extraction. We have not stopped exporting. Everything is proceeding as usual. Typical for the DRC, <laughs> nobody really knows what's going on. What we do know is that the trend lines for China Mali in TFM are not looking good. Bring us up to date now on the drama that's unfolding in Calwezi. Yes, it's a very another drama. Jacobin has succeeded to to put in place the the, the temporary administrator that was appointed by the court in February, and a few weeks ago he, uh, he also said that he has now control of he has a full control of the bank account, the financial of the company, but he still doesn't have the control of the production side because the production side is still under control of CMOG. and the production side is protected by private companies and also by a milit- Congolese military on the ground. So that makes Jekamin really kind of in difficult position to get access to, to the production to production mine. That's why uh, Vincent Joel, the um, spokesperson of CIMOG, said, no, the production is still going. We still have the control of the production and nothing, nothing has stopped. But now the question is how CMOC is going to export its product out of the Congo because Jekamin still has the call to play to stop to to just to stop the CMOC trucks to leave the country because so far CMOC can still produce but for from the production to leave the country it's another problem where Jekamin still has some leverage over CMOC and CC to and push them to stop to, to stop export. So this is the real problem now they're facing now because we have that situation where CMOC is First of all, we have to admit that CMOG just set aside the court justice decision. It doesn't follow the ruling. They don't abide by that. Jekamin wants to play that card and say, you know, we have to abide by the law. And CMOG doesn't want to let it go. And so far, we haven't seen so much political activity from CMOG yet. Because before, you remember, when he started, we saw CMOG engaging with the prime minister, with the Congolese president. But for a few weeks now, almost a month, it's quiet. No political engagement, just their resistance on the on the ground. So we are really wondering what's going to happen from now, how they're going to move forward from now, because the more time passes, we just see that they're just going down the line to a very bad situation. Jake, I mean, even went to mention that they may even think and consider dissolving the, the partnership. Gerard, like, where, where does this dispute come from? Like, what, you know, kind of, like, how, how did it start and, and where, and how do you think it's, it's going to go into the future? So basically, the dispute started last year in August when um, Je- uh, when Jekamin wanted to see a bit clear on the reserve that Simok was declaring, because Jekamin's basic. The co- cobalt, yes, cobalt and copper reserved in, in the ground. Jekamin has been accusing Simok to underestimate the reserve. The, the accusation came from when Simok decided, when Simok announced they're going to invest $2.5 billion into the project. That's where the red flag came to the Jekamin and said, we don't understand that you're going to invest $2.5 billion into the project while the reserve that you're declaring are, don't match the numbers that you're giving us. So a commission was put in place under the presidency office and they came to a conclusion that, yes, 
quote unquote conclusion that yes, Simok is underestimating his reserve. They don't give the right numbers. And Jacqueline say based on the numbers that you owe, the real numbers that you, the real reserve you owe us from different from different sources, the numbers go go from five to seven billion USD. Which numbers that Simok is totally contesting they say it's not right they needs to have an internal any um, uh, a third party an international third party to come to agree on that but so far they haven't been able to find an agreement about on how and who's going to come to do that third party agreement that third party evaluation of of on on the situation on the reserve in in TF and just just to be sure sorry to interrupt you the um there's no objective kind of government run like surveying you know, kind of like outside, this is the surveying that's being done is done by by CMOC, not not by the government. Exactly, and it's really interesting that you mentioned the government because now they have they are into a level of distrust in a way that CMOC doesn't even trust that any result is going to come from a government led body infrastructure. That's why they've been pleading and asking. We want an international body, an international third party to come and to to try to help us settle uh, settle the disputes. So this is not an issue that is new just to CMOC, Jacquemines, and TFM. This is also the central issue that dates all the way back to the Kabila administration, that's before President Chesikati, with Sikomines as well, where they were accused of understating the quantity of reserves. And this is so important just so folks really understand what it means. So the idea here is that if the Chinese say there's a hundred units of cobalt in the ground. And in reality, there are a thousand units of cobalt in the ground. But on paper, they say there's a hundred units. What ends up happening is that the Chinese then walk away with a thousand units, sell all that money, but pay royalties back to the Congolese partner only for a hundred units. Is that a correct understanding? Exactly. Right. So the Congolese feel like they're being robbed and ripped off and cheated. Cheated them. That's right. So here's the big problem, though. And this is, let's just get down to brass tacks here. And this is what I wrote yesterday in the newsletter as well. Jacquemines may be unhappy with CMOC. Jacquemines may want to stop CMOC from doing business. But at the end of the day, what options does an entity like Jacquemines have to find a replacement for CMOC? It's not like Glencore or Ivanhoe. No one's lining up to spend billions of dollars on a cobalt mine, despite the fact that European, US, Korean, and Japanese governments have all said access to cobalt is a strategic imperative. The problem is they can't compel their private sector companies to fork over billions of dollars to buy into a very risky mining venture in the Southern DRC. That's number one. Number two, is there another Chinese company that might step in? And would another Chinese company be any different in its behavior with Jacquemines. What are the options that Jacquemines has to play? For now on Jacquemines, the only option... For- not the only option. They has the option. They have the option to stop uh, and import uh, export from the Congo to block the trucks. Okay, so they stop that, but what, but that hurts them too. By the way, they're not getting any money. They're hurting themselves too. Exactly, that hurts them a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of billion dollars that you you're not gonna get. That hurts them a lot. And this is why we kind of wonder, in terms of the timeline, how long they can 
they can sustain in that situation. Because on the one hand, we have to admit that Simok has the luxury of time. They can wait. They can wait it off. They can even allow themselves to go to court. You know, the proceeding can take time. But the Congolese, they cannot allow themselves to do that because we are talking about 14% of world's cobalt production. TFM is a huge one. It's a huge, it's a huge cobalt project. It's a, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, into the Congolese treasury. So our are the Congolese ready to go and to sustain this kind of fight on the longer run? And not don't forget that President Chisekedi is running for presidency in 2023. And we just can we just can kind of wonder, do can, can he allow himself to find himself in that kind of situation while running for election in 2023, knowing that you know you won't have that much money to run for and to run with in, in for the for the campaign? And how much power does Chisekedi have over? This crisis, theoretically, is the president. He should be. He should have okay. a lot. Theoretically, yeah. he's the president, but we all know that in reality, he's the mayor of, uh, of Kinshasa, right? Exactly. I mean, he's exactly. not really the president of the entire country. Exactly, because you have so many stakeholders, regional stakeholders in the Katanga region that have that have a tremendous power. Because, for example, why Jacobin is not is not capable of accessing Simo ground? Because you have military on the ground who respond to other source of power into the DRC. That's quite, you know, it's quite surprising when you say, well, why the, the, Jacobin has the justice um, decision with him? Why they don't just go and take control of the ground? Because on the ground, reality is totally complex. You have security services who respond to other source, to other networks of power into the DRC. That makes just so difficult for Jacobin to intervene on the ground without really coming with a lot of casualties that may come. So in terms of options that you mentioned earlier, different sources may, they, they've been saying that if China is allowed, if China is considering even to take CMOC of the project and to sell it to another Chinese company, that might be an option that Jacobin might consider. But we're still going to have to wait how much they're going to go into that. So far, the Chinese ambassador told us that they're not really willing to see CIMOC um, uh, and Jacobin partnership to be dissolved. You mentioned the Chinese ambassador. You spoke with, with Ambassador Zhu Jing this week. And, you know, kind of, so I was wondering kind of what spin he put on, on this crisis. Yes, I, I spoke with him because I really wanted to have the Chinese side of the story because so far we've been hearing a lot from Jacobin. The Congolese government is not speaking and CIMOC executives are not speaking much about the issue. So based on how CIMOC is important both for both Congolese government and the Chinese government, I wanted to have his take on the issue. So I asked him what's the take on the issue. For him, he said the issue is quite simple to resolve if both sides come with, with good faith and said something on the long, along the line that the Congolese side, the Jacobin, should stop using a state apparatus to intimidate or even to force the situation on the ground. So basically gave me a quite diplomatic answer, but he also expressed his, um, his clear understanding of the situation where he said that CIMOC is very important for both sides, the Congolese government and the Chinese government. This is why my question came, because I wanted to understand if down the line we may see Chinese government being involved directly into, this, into the talks with the Congolese government to find an agreement. Because the way the situation is going on the ground, I really wonder if Jacobin and CIMOC will be able to solve the issue without political intervention from both sides. That is the key question. Will this escalate to the geopolitics 
between Chesa Kedi and, say, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, or even higher, even to the level of Xi Jinping, given the importance of cobalt. There was a graphic that was circulating this week by Standard & Poor's, which I think speaks to this and showed the growth of the Chinese electric vehicle industry over the next 10 years, the domestic Chinese electric vehicle industry, never mind the processing that companies like CATL and others and Zhejiang Huayu are doing for battery makers outside of China, but just inside China, and it is a hockey stick. I mean, it is just straight up. And so even though cobalt prices today are relatively flat along with nickel prices, lithium right now is the real prize out there. The price of lithium is just really very stubborn. Skyrocketing. Yeah, it's very, very high. So the question is, will this rise to geopolitics? And do you think there's a, a, a play here now for the US and the Europeans to get in? China's on its back foot in the Congo with CMUK. The Congolese are playing tough. Do you see a role for the US and Europeans or the Japanese and Koreans or other players to make a move on TFM? Or is that just so far out of the question, wishful thinking, the fantasies of those in Washington, but in reality, they're never going to be close to it? What's the, what's the game that you see? Now, I'm going to go straight. There's, no, there's, there's still no play for Western companies into the game. The game is still a Chinese game. And let's not forget that, except Simok, it's a, it's a very funny situation. While Simok is fighting with Jekamin over TFM, it's the same Simok who, like last week, announced that they're going to, they're going to invest 1.8 billion in another venture the they have with Jacob amazing timing exactly. like you're going to pump in 1.8 billion on top of the 2.5 billion okay I mean, exactly. this is massive money coming into the Congo. Exactly. So it shows you that they are not going to let go into the into, into TFM. They're not going to let go into the project. So this is why I say, no, there's no ground for Western companies. And you mentioned it earlier in terms of financial risk, in terms of political risk, in terms of so many risks on the ground. So far, the Chinese are the only one willing to come and play the game into DRC the way the game is played. Well, let's come back to your conversation with Zhu Jing that Kobus referenced, and you talked about, you chatted with him about the CMOC issue. What are some of the other topics that you touched on in the interview? Yeah, the other topic I touched on is, was about the U.S.-China relationship with the DRC. You remember last 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 year he had a quite spot with a former U.S. diplomat, and I wanted to know what he's reading on the situation. It he just reminded us that you know DRC is a demo, is a sovereign country, and they're free to engage with any country they want to, and uh, China is willing to work with the, any country, Western countries, even the U.S. on the ground to work. With, alongside with the Congolese government but for them to do that US has to abandon has to forgo its obsolete cold war mentality and he was quite he was quite strong word against that with that because he was clear clear that 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 cold war Chinese vs US mentality that may play on the continent they're not just willing to play along with that on, on the ground except that we talk about the Chinese and DRC China relationship where he had the opportunity to give us what everything that China has been doing on the ground and um, and how there's been they've been helping investing in the country but there was an interesting thing I wanted to to to, t- to 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 talk about him it, to talk with him it was about the Chinese stance on the situation on the east part of the DRC because uh, China is um, China is 
Congolese is a DRC ally in a, in, in a certain way. We wanted to know what China can really do in um, in in that situation. He just reiterated China just protect wants the DRC sovereignty to be protected and respected, but except that he did not give us much uh, into what we are expecting him to could no, give us. That's in, not their thing. Exactly, that's not their thing. Yeah. They're not they're not going to intervene. They're not going to take sides. They're not going... I mean, again, they're very close with the Kagame government in Rwanda as well. They have bigger strategic interests in the Congo, but they're not going to alienate the Rwandans either. Kobus, let's get your take on this. So we've had a half-hour discussion looking at what are some major setbacks for Chinese mining interests. Again, larger setbacks than I've ever seen before in the China-Africa experiment of the past 20 years. These are very big obstacles that they're facing. And the fact that they're happening within the same week is also very interesting. What's your big picture take on this? What struck me in, in all of this is is this trend that is, is how these these kind of issues are playing out both in you know in 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 the private sector, public sector, um, which in China those two obviously sit a lot closer together. You know, kind of like on you know, the there's there's a lot more coordination between between the government the party and and companies in China than there than you could see in on the western side um so you know on you know I was thinking as Jiro was, was talking what was very interesting is the way that that you know this way that 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 western leadership or western kind of influence in the world is so different from that of China in the sense that on you know with with China like everything is kind of party headed you know like the the party sets the the direction and then and then in in its com in their complicated ways and in their own they're trying to fit the, into their own their own kind of profit agendas companies follow follow that kind of broad direction setting that's not really true in the case of of, of a, a country like the US you know if you when you speak to to U.S. diplomats in Africa, there's there's very few priorities for them that's higher than this issue of of of, of Chinese kind of you know uh, Chinese focus on cobalt and the way that 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 China controls eighty percent of the world's cobalt refining. American diplomats are very worried about that. That's not necessarily the truth for American companies, you know. Kind of, and it, and it becomes this very interesting interesting kind of situation to, to see, you know, kind of how this kind of power negotiation is happening, you know, in, on the Western side of these issues. It's not so easy to sit for governments to simply set an agenda and then and then have corporate partners follow follow that lead. And, and to be fair, that's also the case in Europe, Japan and South Korea yes, as well. Exactly. I mean, that's it's not a uniquely American phenomenon. Exactly, exactly. That, you know, kind of the, the, that is the thing that they complain about when, when they talk about, China, you know, kind of Chinese shaping of the market and Chinese shaping of, of like forcing companies to do to do their bidding, you know. So it's, it's, it's very interesting, but it's happening at this moment when Global South governments are starting to become a lot more hardcore about wanting to refine at home and wanting to even to even kind of have have production and IP development, you know, located in their countries. So I, I wrote a, 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 an article for Foreign Policy recently where I, you know, kind of where I argued that that there is there's the danger of us replicating of of us in in, in trying to to kind of kickstart a green revolution and, and particularly via batteries of replicating a kind of a 19th century dynamic of just exporting raw materials and having all of the the actual wealth creation i.e the the ip creation and the, the you know the refining and so on all happening in the global north and that in you know kind of even though when you when you speak to western diplomats they they talk a big game about wanting to avoid that 
and actually that's true for Chinese diplomats too. Um, you know, like like when you talk to them, all that they want to do is just to kind of like enrich the the DRC and make it develop and so on. But when you actually when you actually compare their positions, they're actually the Chinese and the Westerners are a lot closer together than either of them two are to to the kind of this kind of global South push for locating the relocating the IP to, to in the southern hemisphere. Kobus, there's not a risk of that happening. It's happening. That's exactly what it is happening right now. I mean, the cobalt that's in my iPhone is the IP for that's all in Cupertino, California. True, but 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 at the moment we still we're still at the low end of that graph. You know, kind of like if 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 one looks forward into the next fifteen years, the kind of level of explosion of of rechargeable batteries that we're going to need, the, the kind of the amount of manufacturing of those batteries that's going to happen over the next fifteen years, has the potential of turning a country like like the DRC into something like Saudi Arabia, except that. Or there are a lot of these barriers, including issues like like stable electricity, for example. Well, governance, I think, is the key issue there. And the fact that the DRC is effectively a failed state by many standards makes it impossible to achieve that goal. I think Asia is probably better positioned to lead on this. As Giraud pointed out, N- Indonesia has started to take the lead on forcing nickel and bauxite processing before it's exported. Uh, other Southeast Asian countries are also starting to follow yeah. suit. But And this is where it comes but down I to mean, the governance so question in Africa, though. Is sure, like I mean, governance is one thing, but like, but the, another reason why why Indonesia is, itself is manages to 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 do that is because it has a ton of Chinese built power plants, almost all of which are are, are coal fired power plants. Yeah, that's a good point. And now you can't get a Chinese financed coal fired power plant in Zimbabwe or elsewhere to process this stuff because the Chinese have banned financing for coal. Yeah, but there, there's fine print there because they recently, they recently, like the the, the difference between funding and, and and contracting is is one of the one of the kind of fine print areas because they recently finished a coal fired plant in I think in Nigeria, yeah, yeah. So so we'll see we'll see what happens, but yeah, it's 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 a real conundrum. Yes, but what you mentioned earlier, Eric mentioned it. It was a governance issue because in Indonesia we have the they have the infrastructure in place, they have the they have the electricity in place that the Chinese has built. But in Africa, Chinese companies, they may be willing to do that, but the political instability in Africa is just something that makes situation difficult. Even when you want to build the basic um, power plant infrastructure, you, you, have to, you have to overcome so political constraint, corruption and mismanagement that just makes the cost high and high for many. So that's why Chinese companies are just de- deciding to leave, to do the processing back home in, 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 um, in, in, in China. That was one of the reasons that Zhejiang Huayu mentioned in Zimbabwe by mentioning that the lack of know-how, but also the lack of power in, in structure, the power infrastructure in the country. Yes, but this is where it gets so frustrating that African countries don't work more closely together. So yes, Giraud, you're absolutely right that corruption and limitations on power are a problem in some African countries. But let's be fair, it's not a problem across the entire continent. No. Kenya is rich in electricity. Lots of electricity, lots of renewable electricity. So imagine if there were sophisticated, robust rail lines that took, you know, the cobalt from the DRC to either Tanzania or to Kenya and was processed in Kenya. Royalties were then kicked back into the DRC and then processed cobalt left from the port of Mombasa. Imagine that kind of world. Yes. But we're not thinking like that. That And African countries have made a terrible, terrible job 
of working collaboratively and regionally on these issues. Exactly. Just let me give an, an, an example. Let's go back in Guinea. Why Guinea has uh, is asking companies to build the railway? Because Guinea doesn't want the Simandu iron ore to, iron ore to be exported from Buchanan port in Liberia. The railway is there, the port is there, but the Guinean, they just don't want the iron ore to be exported from Liberia. And that doesn't make sense. Well, it's cold, see, it doesn't make sense. So I've been in Washington now for the past two weeks. My first week here, unfortunately, was a, a complete loss due to COVID. But the second week, I've been out meeting people, think tanks, government, legislative teams. It's been absolutely fascinating. My head is spinning with all of the discussions that I've been having with people. And I come here every summer just to try and get the pulse of what people are thinking and saying. It's, I can't give too many analyses right now because I just have too much bouncing around in my head. I have to let everything sit for a while, and then I'm going to share some, some views on this. But one of the points that came up over and over again in a number of the conversations is why aren't African governments working closely together on, say, Chinese loans, on infrastructure with AFCFTA? Now, to be fair... It's starting to happen in some areas, so it's not universally that it's not happening. It's just not happening at the speed and scale to really make a big impact. Is that a fair assessment, Giro? Yes, it's completely. It's a fair assessment because that's the kind of cooperation we'd like to see more. Pulling resources between, for example, Zambia and the DRC, Tanzania and the DRC, to pull to create those infrastructure together, to pull those resources so they can benefit from it. But you have some regional and geopolitical interests that just send them in a way that they don't. They choose not to cooperate. It just doesn't make sense. This is the dirty secret here. Algeria is buying Chinese drones because it hates Morocco. Nigeria, and Morocco is, buying, Morocco is buying weapons from China too. There you go. And Nigeria and Ghana have problems. Rwanda and the DRC are having problems. Kenya and Somalia are having problems. I mean, we can go down the list. And so this idea of working collaboratively runs right up against national politics. Exactly. And Kobus, I don't know how you get around this, but at some point, each individual African country is so much weaker than a group. Is there any possibility that African countries and small groups can do what a lot of the American stakeholders that I'm talking with, they can work more collaboratively together? Do you think that's a realistic dream? Well, you know, at least, you know, at the moment when, when, when international trade routes, and, you know, and trade relationships are falling apart, the, the continent managed to, to, you know, kick off an, uh, you know, a, a massive new free trade area. So I don't think it's impossible. It's just I think I think a lot of this will will come down to finding finding ways to articulate you know kind of shared interests um, in a way that's, that's that's more compelling than than national culture or the nation state. And that is a is a that's a really big challenge. But it's a big challenge in in many places. I mean, you know, kind of this this very similar kind of challenges in South America. Um, you know, and I've I've heard South American analysts saying that you know, kind of that Africa is actually better at that at, at working together than than in, in some cases in South America. So you know, so so this is like ASEAN. There, you know, kind of is is, is a great example um, because the issue is is finding spaces of collaboration while not 
having everything blown up by by these kind of structural disagreements that you have with neighbors you know and so so being very pragmatic in that respect um you know yeah you know it's it's not much of an answer but hopefully you know it's yeah it's it's it's, it's a tough it's a tough challenge yeah i mean we certainly don't see that anywhere near as cohesively in southeast asia again southeast asia in many ways is like africa which is a very large population almost Six, seven hundred million people spread across 10 countries. Africa obviously is much larger in terms of the numbers of countries. But the differences in language, ethnicity, religion, uh, culture are so divergent and so diverse that it makes this type of cooperation very, very difficult. And again, this was asked to me as to whether or not these countries can work collaboratively together, not only within Africa, but then South-South-wise. And I don't see that happening anywhere near as much as it probably should either. Do you, Koba, see a lot of, you know, learning, say, from what Indonesia is doing or what Laos is doing with China in places like Africa? I think there's more of it now than than there used to be. I think you know, like it's like this this kind of like Jiro was was pointing out this you know kind of taking a lead from from you know or at least seeing similar trends pop up in places like Indonesia and and parts of Africa. You know, kind of I think is an, an kind of early an early indicator. Well, that's certainly what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean that, that doesn't necessarily mean we're back to some kind of like Bandung spirit. You know, kind of, but it's you know kind of at, at least you know kind of they may well be some some form of like like knowledge sharing but yeah we, we'll have to see okay so quickly before we go Giro, a lot of these stories are unfolding this week give us a little preview of what you're looking at for next week so for next week i'm gonna be looking at and the following up on that story in guinea and the drc because drc basically it's become a story just they want this the saga just giving more and more and more into that so we're gonna be following that closely and also in guinea what's gonna come out of that out of that and uh, for our patreon community we're gonna be sharing what we are going with what we are the insight our insight on different on on, on those different issues and um, yes we're also gonna expect uh, our newsletter coming up next week as for many of for some of you who don't know we have now uh, start publishing our newsletter in french so if you really want to receive those newsletter just eat up with the message we're gonna we're gonna register you in in the in, in the mailing list you're gonna be receiving our mail st- our our newsletter our new weekly newsletter it comes like twice a week tuesday and friday and to keep up with what we cover in china africa and french so we're going to be updating the french website to make it very easy for you to sign up for this free twice weekly newsletter it is fantastic you're getting Giro's insights and all of the latest china africa news En français, there's nothing else like it anywhere out there. We have a newsletter also coming in Arabic soon as well, so keep an eye out for that. Kobus, you are launching a column on Friday when this podcast launches. Tell us a little bit about some of the ideas you're working on for next week as well. You know, the, this column on, on Friday, I was kind of, you know, reflecting on some some of our conversations, just you know, in, in touching base on um, when when you were in the in DC, um, and you know, wh- one of the points that you made was that. You know, once you're in America, like all of these, all of these kind of international issues, um, like for example the the extremely kind of developed and 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 proactive kind of diplomacy that the Chinese have been doing um, in various parts of the global south over over the last two weeks, you've seen like all of the heavy hitters, like very very senior people in the Chinese government, are all all across the global south. They're meeting with 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 people in Africa, in Asia, you know, all over. 
And it's and you made the point that that all of that stuff completely falls off the radar the moment you're in the US. Um, and just news when just is in terms of news coverage. And I and, and 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 I made the point that it's actually very similar here in South Africa, simply because South Africans are so obsessed with with how difficult life is now because of among others because of the, because the electricity grid is essentially falling apart um you know so you have a situation where where people do very sophisticated work you know it's like working for international tv networks or like doing very high level analysis and but they have to like trek across the city back and forth to find different places where they can keep being on Wi-Fi because the because the electricity keeps going out everywhere we go. Um, you know, so it's that kind of situation where even as these massive developments are happening, these kind of bread and butter day-to-day issues are, you know, are, are keeping people distracted enough distracted enough that they don't that they, they can't have any kind of real real, you know, kind of participation in it, even when it directly affects them. And part of this thinking, and this is what I'm continuing into next week, is I'm becoming increasingly obsessed with the Global Development Initiative. This is this is Xi Jinping's recently announced kind of like new phase of the BRI. Um, and it's 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 twinned with the global security initiative. So it's you know it's it's both development and security. And in because it's China, you know, kind of secure like a, a, a kind of a security development nexus that is essentially being being presented as the as the kind of building the future. You know, kind of to to the global south. It's 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 only starting now. It's being very heavily promoted by the party, um, and it's it's the new centerpiece of, of of Xi Jinping's international outreach, and it's it's fascinating to see how they kind of like looking at development itself as this in, you know kind of in the context of a kind of a wider geopolitical struggle um, and how development is is essentially becoming this this space for for geopolitics so this is something that I'm looking at a lot this is the coming week and we have a conversation coming up next week with two experts on China's discourse power in the global south and global development initiative is a major part of changing that discourse changing the discussion about development that has up until now been largely dominated by u.s and european institutions and so the chinese with the gdi and with the global security initiative uh, want to impact the discourse and we're going to be talking with two experts on that next week. So lots of cool stuff coming up next week. I'll still be in Washington next week meeting with people. Again, I'm going to start sharing some of the, the conclusions and the thoughts about it. But I'll tell you, as an American who doesn't live in the United States, it's weird being back. I mean, I was on the Washington subway yesterday. And I'm not the only person that was thinking this. Okay, I am sure <laughs> that I'm not the only person who was thinking this. Who's going to pull out a gun and start shooting? Mm. seriously, it's a form of terrorism. And I've never really felt it like this. But again, we had another shooting in Highland Park in Illinois over July 4th weekend, just so random. I mean, it was at a July 4th parade. And, and, and the randomness of it is the terrorism of it all. You're just at yes. the mercy of one asshole who's having a bad mental health day and has a gun. Exactly. And yes. that is not the case in most other countries in the world. Even in the DRC when I live there, that's not the case it's in certainly China. not the case in China. China has its weirdness on stabbings and things like that, but not at the scale, <laughs> but it's not exactly. at the scale of what we're seeing in the United States on guns. And it's created this fear and anxiety that you look around and we're becoming a low trust society. 
And the United States was always among the higher trust societies. But in many developing countries, there's low trust societies where there are weak governance institutions, and the goal is to keep you away from me. That is oftentimes in many developing societies where you don't have a a proper criminal justice system, so you always worry about people taking the law into their own hands. And that's certainly the case in many of the developing countries I've lived in. The United States, in many respects, feels like it's becoming that. And it's a weird anxiety. It's a weird feeling to be looking suspiciously at everybody around you going, is that the exit I take? What if I duck here? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So weird. And, and again, this impacts us geopolitically as well because it's a rot in the society. And one of the challenges that I've been having these conversations with American diplomats is the challenge that they face. And Kobus, you wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, pity the poor American diplomat who has to go out and represent a country that domestically is pulling itself apart and ripping itself apart violently in many respects. Yeah, especially, especially because the United States, like one, one of its hallmarks is, is its incredible level of transparency, you know, kind of, and, and its incredible level of kind of self-commentary, you know, and so all like even as all of this is happening, everyone is watching it happen in real time. It, it you know it, it it cycles around the world within within seconds. You know, kind of the moment that that kind of thing happens. But then, but then the the, the messaging is doesn't seem that the diplomatic measure messaging I think finds it very difficult to incorporate these realities. You know, kind of or to explain them. It's interesting that you bring that up because you know someone raised the very interesting point that. If something like this happened in Gansu, China, for example, we wouldn't know about exactly. it. Exactly. Mm. There's no foreign media to report on it. Uh, there's a big language barrier. There's enormous amounts of censorship. And if it made the party look bad, they would, they would shut it down quickly. Exactly. And as they have. Yes, from time to time, things like the beatings in Tangshan, you know, that was the terrible incident where women were violently assaulted by a group of eight to ten men. That did make it out. That was horrible, but that doesn't happen very often. China's not a transparent society like that. So a lot of American stakeholders were lamenting the fact that you've just made, Cobus, that it seems worse here because we're more transparent and more open about it. I think the problem that a lot of people in other countries have, though, is that the United States also holds itself up as the, the benchmark, the standard for everybody else. Exactly. Our environmental standards, our governance standards, our democracy standards, etc., and not taking into account that many of those those standards are under pressure. Yeah. The Supreme Court dealt a huge setback on environment. I was at a talk by Wendy Sherman in Vietnam a few weeks ago, and she was holding up the U.S. as a leader in climate issues. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Your Supreme Court yeah. literally that week dealt a major blow to U.S. climate change efforts. And that discrepancy often isn't held to account in U.S. foreign policy. And that's a, that's a challenge. Again, pity the poor American diplomat, no doubt. Yeah, and I mean, you know, but, but that, that, that kind of cognitive dissonance, I think, is becoming one of, one of the, the big kind of issues, big political issues within the U.S. as well. That this is, it's going to be a, 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 a major liability, I think, for, for any kind of like Biden run, in, you know, if, if, if it happens. Um, and yeah, don't know how to solve that problem, you know. No, but uh, we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead because, again, I do want to share some of my reflections of the week here. I'll be heading out to California 
for a couple of weeks there to wait for my new passport before I can go back home. And it's, uh, I'm eager to get back home. I'll tell you that right now. Home is Vietnam. Home is not the U.S. So that's exciting. Anyway, let's leave the conversation there. A very big thank you. We've got some new Patreon supporters this week. You have no idea how much it means to me and to all of us, all of us on the team, eight members on this team. When you support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. You'll get our weekly digest that we email out. Uh, also, Cobus and Giraud have promised me, and I'm going to force you guys now in front of everybody, to commit that you're going to, no, you're you, going to you, commit right here in front we, of everybody committing. else. I've been hacking these guys for, you know, just hassling them for weeks now to contribute more to our Patreon community. And it's a great group of people there. We're having some great discussions, and, and we're just so grateful for your support. All of the discussions that we've had over the past hour are ideas that we feature first in our newsletters, on our sites, on Projet Afrique Chine in French, also on our English site at China Global South and in the newsletter. Cobus's ideas, his columns every week, the news that we're all writing. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions are super cheap. You're also supporting independent journalists, independent analysts. We have eight of us in the Global South that are working so hard every day to put this content out for you. Your support, your subscription helps to support us as an independent journalism entity. It helps support Giraud, Nesrin in Cairo, and our team in China, as well as Chris in Cape Town and Cobus in, in Johannesburg and myself in Vietnam. We write from the Global South for the Global South, and we certainly appreciate all of your support. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe to sign up. Subscriptions are, again, super cheap. You know what, guys? Just before we go... A subscription to the China Africa Project for students and teachers is seven bucks. You cannot walk out of a Starbucks in the United States for less than ten bucks. <laughs> you, you know, I've I first had an experience of, of current Starbucks pricing. <laughs> you cannot walk out of a Starbucks for less than ten bucks. I mean, you know, if you get a drink and a piece of food, you're at fifteen bucks. So by that standard, our subscription is a great value. So let's leave our conversation there. Cobus, Giraud, and I will be back again next week. We're online all the time. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afriquechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>